everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right. Good morning, everybody. It is, uh, yeah, good morning. Um, We are continuing on today in our series in the book of Matthew. And just a, a quick recap, if you weren't here last week, we really start to see this man, Jesus, um, step into this teaching role, this idea of a rabbi. And that a rabbi, the idea of that was somebody who would come along, um, oftentimes you would come to them and say, can I follow you? And the idea was, I want to become exactly like you. And this Jesus, rabbi, is going along a beach and he finds two sets of two fishermen, four guys, and he says, I want you to come follow me because I think you can become like me someday. It's amazing. And, and the, the sermon that he's been giving so far, he's really been plagiarizing uh, his cousin, John the Baptist, who's, who's had this sermon that goes like this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn around and come home because God is putting the world back together. That's, that's been his sermon so far, but today we're gonna get to dive into a little bit of a shift where we watch Matthew, who's the author of this book about Jesus, say here's, here's some new material. Here's some things you haven't heard in a sermon before. And if we're gonna understand it, uh, I think there's a frame of reference that we'll have to be in. We live in America, in Western civilization, Western culture, and there's this ideal that comes with that. It's the ideal of individualism or the individual. This all started off with Alexander the Great. We're not going to get into that, but just to get us kind of woken up, this will be like, if you haven't had your coffee, this will do it for you this morning. But uh, the BBC put out just a little nugget, two and a half minutes on what is individualism. Uh, as you watch this, I would love for you to be thinking about this. First, do you love hearing an English accent? Because I do, and I miss Steve being on stage because at least there's the Australian piece that you go, oh, it's just like butter to my ears, I love that. So enjoy that, see if you like it. I want you to be thinking about what's this saying about you as a Westerner? And finally, what, what is this saying about Jesus? And do you agree? And we're gonna spend some, it's a little funky, just to give you a teaser, but what's this saying about Jesus? Go ahead and check this out. The A to Z of isms. Individualism. If someone called you an individualist, would you be flattered or insulted? An individualist might be a rugged John Wayne, a pioneer like Amy Johnson, a creative innovator like Kate Bush, or an entrepreneur like Richard Branson. People we admire for refusing to follow the crowd, for being true to themselves. But individualism is also often said to be the source of Western civilization's degeneracy, accused of leading to selfishness, shallow consumerism, the breakdown of society. Individualism is a double-edged sword. Many believe its Western roots go right back to early Christianity. Jesus taught that salvation did not depend on what tribe you belonged to, but on how you chose to live your life. God had a one-to-one relationship with people, not to groups. The 16th century Protestant Reformation took this further, taking away the need for priests to act as intermediaries between God and ordinary people. This sowed the seeds for the flowering of the modern individual in the 18th century Enlightenment. The Prussian philosopher Kant summed up its key message in the Latin phrase sapere orde, dare to know, to think for yourself. 
Personal autonomy became the central value of Western society. We see this in the principles of one person, one vote, civil liberties and equal rights for all. But this in many ways welcome development has gone hand in hand with the decline of community. The growth of independence and autonomy leads to a decline in interdependence and solidarity. In other cultures, these communal values have traditionally taken precedence. Across East Asia, who you are cannot be separated from the groups you belong to. That does not mean you lose your identity in the crowd. You find your identity in it as a parent, a child, a ruler, a teacher, an apprentice. When we can all be different and yet all come together, we have harmony, the highest value in Confucian philosophy. Across the world, individualism is lamented when it turns us into atomized units cut off from each other, showing little or no interest in our fellow citizens. But if you can be yourself while also being part of society, contributing to it, your individualism will be praised and celebrated. All right. If you're like, dude, it is 9 a.m. on a weekend. <laughs> Give me a break. Me too. I get it. Let me, let me take what you just saw and make it as, as simple as I know how to make it, just so we're all working with the same playbook this morning. I, I love food. I love cooking food. I love eating food. I just love food. And there's some places, some restaurants that do food differently, and it's really, it really just puts this on display. Have you ever been to the Macaroni Grill? Macaroni Grill, great kind of typical Italian restaurant. If you were to go to the Macaroni Grill, here's a picture of the menu. Here's just a couple of the things that you could get. If you were to go there, you could order this. This, is, this would be a meal or, and how much those things would cost. Now, this should strike you as like, dude, it's not that early on a Sunday. <laughs> like, I get it. I know how to order food at a restaurant. But this is how we think about meals, especially at restaurants. What am I going to get? What's the menu do for me? What am, what's my taste tonight? Now, hold this in comparison with a place like, say, Buca de Beppo. Have you ever been to Buca de Beppo? Totally different menu. You're going to see two prices for everything. And for those of you that held numbers in your head, you're kind of going, man, these look the same. But there's one particular thing that I want to draw your attention to. If you've never been to Buca di Beppo, it's, a, it's an Italian family-style restaurant. And so if you zoom in on this top part of the menu, give me that next slide, what that says is if you get the smaller price point, that serves two people, the bigger one serves four. And the idea of a dinner like this is we're just going to put a bunch of huge bowls out on your table, everybody's sharing the meal tonight, we are eating dinner together. So when you're ordering at Buca di Beppo, you're not just going, what do I want? But it naturally draws conversation. Hey, what are we going to have? What sounds good to you? What are your food allergies? What can we have, can't we have? But it's for all of us. This is our dinner. It's very different. And so it, I think for me, it really helps just kind of piece apart. It doesn't necessarily mean that one's better than another. But they're two very different ways of ordering food. They're two very different ways of thinking. And if we're going to understand this Jesus as he's starting into this Sermon on the Mount, I think you have to hold this idea of individualism versus collectivism or a, or a corporate thinking, a family thinking. You have to hold those in tension because if you just approach it as an individualist, you're going to miss the point of this sermon. So 
Uh, one more piece as we kind of catch up to our sermon today. Um, there's a map I want to put up on the screen. Just a reminder of who all is sitting around him at this point. He's got his four disciples, but right before this, he's been preaching, he's been healing people, but these people have come from all over. I mean, this, this northern part, the big green up there, that's Galilee. Um, that's, that's an area where you're going to get a lot of Jewish people. We know that there's also folks from Jerusalem and Judea. That's from further south. They're all there. So the Jews are in the house. And if we're reading this story, and this was written largely to a Jewish audience, we're going, okay, good. That's exactly who we would expect to see there. We have a Jewish rabbi in Jesus. We've got a bunch of Jewish people. Yes. And then, right before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, it says, and people were hearing about him all over Syria, which isn't even on this map because it's so far north. And you would immediately think, oh, those, that's Rome. That's the Romans. That's not Jewish people. That's Rome. And then it explicitly says, and then the Decapolis, which is the bottom right of the map here, which again you would go, oh no, that's Rome. That's the bad guys. That, that's, that's this group of people, this, this whole culture and civilization and country that has taken over. They're the occupying force in the land. They're invited to come sit with Jesus. I'm very uncomfortable with this. And it wasn't just that, but right before this, he's been healing people. It says he was casting out demons and any sickness, anything that had been going on, he was just making things whole. It's phenomenal, but if you're Jewish, you're going, you can't touch people like, say, lepers, or you really shouldn't even be messing with demon-possessed people. There was just a sense in their code and in their, in their culture of, like, stay away from them. And Jesus has now not only been touching them, but he's saying, hey, come sit with me. So if you're watching this story or if you're reading this for the first time as a first century Jewish reader, you're going, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> he seems to be doing everything wrong. The folks that he's inviting to the party seem to offend what I know to be true about the Old Testament, all the Bible that I have and know. There's no way this guy can be the real deal. And the whole time, Jesus is continuing to spout this idea, the kingdom of heaven. It's so close. It's, you could reach out and touch it. It's as if Jesus is saying, this is what it's supposed to look like. And, and that's totally unexpected. So we're gonna be, for most of our day, in the Beatitudes and then talking about these couple other metaphors that Jesus gives right after he says them. And if you're like, what's a Beatitude? A Beatitude is essentially a saying, but it's a way of going, uh, how, how do you know if you're in good shape? Who's blessed? Um, and, and Beatitudes actually show up in other points in Scripture. Here's a couple right here on the screen. This first one comes out of Psalm 1-1. It says this, blessed is the one. That's how you know you're in a Beatitude. If it starts out with blessed is or blessed or blessed are they. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's good practice. That's what you should be about. Don't sit in the way of sin. Cool. There's another beatitude in Psalm 32, verse two. It says this, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is not deceit. Cool, so don't be deceitful and if the Lord's spirit is in you, that's awesome. Cool, okay, so that's what beatitudes are. It's a way of just saying Here, here's who's blessed. Here's what brings happiness or joy. That's what it's about. And Matthew, as he's going to start recording Jesus's beatitudes, there's a really important set of words that you're gonna need to pick up on as we read through this. He's saying y'all, and it's not gonna be super clear, but I think as you hear all of them together, you're gonna start to pick up like, oh, he's not talking to individuals, he's talking like a Texan, 
and y'all. This is for y'all. These are beatitudes for y'all. Y'all need to know this. Y'all need to live this way, y'all. That's what Jesus is talking about. So it goes like this. We're going to pick up our text today in uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you brought your Bible, you can turn there now. We're going to spend some fun time in this today. And it goes like this. Out of the New Revised Standard is what I'm reading. It says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak. And he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay. If you're like, this is the greatest sermon I've ever heard, you're not wrong. Also, if you're like, I don't understand most of what's going on and what was just read, you're not wrong either. I mean, this is language. This is, this is not how really we speak in our culture today. It's kind of, I think, it's kind of hard to track. What's he really getting at? And especially the, the NRSV drives me nuts because if you go back to Psalm 1-1 or Psalm 32-2, their beatitudes will literally start with happy is the one. And, and there's something in here where you go, it doesn't quite compute. It's the same word in Hebrew that they're translating blessed now in Matthew. But if, if we're going to use the word happy, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are, happy are those who mourn. What is Jesus? What are you talking about? Like, you're supposed to be a rabbi. You're already dancing on the edge of a knife because you got all these wild people here. I think there's a lot of people, especially Jewish folks, who are looking at this young rabbi going, I, <laughs> he's, out, he's off his rocker. This doesn't make any sense, what he's saying. But I think if we were to go in and pull apart, what do each one of these things mean? There's going to be a handful of things that really start to come into focus. So let's go one at a time through these. We're going to move pretty quickly. I'm going to put a summary up on the screen. And I think what I would invite you to do is keep your focus on the screen. By the end, it's going to be a lot of words. But I want you to be asking the question, if everybody lived like this, what would the world be like? And I think if you can see it that way, you'll start to receive it how maybe the original audience would have also received it of like, wow, that's what Jesus thinks the human person should be engineered to be like. Check this out. Okay, poor. Specifically here, Matthew uses the term poor in spirit. Luke, when he records a similar sermon, is just going to use the word poor. But really, Matthew's getting at something even more specific. Poor in spirit is not just saying you don't have money. It's getting at a spiritual thing. So I think there's two best ways to look at it. Poor in spirit is like, these are people who are trying. <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of spirit left. I'm poor in it. But man, I'm trying to stick with God here. His ways are the best, and I'm giving this my all. I'm trying. But I think, too, even more, there's this sense of dependency. 
Like blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are so dependent on God for everything. That's really what I want you to understand. That's the flavor of this thing. These folks, these types of people, they live life like they're subservient, like they serve something higher. In this case, a God who they would say, this is my leader and my authority, that's who I serve. Blessed are those people. And then there's this line that comes after that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hang on to that. We'll circle back on that in a minute. The next one, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, I was just talking with uh, Alex, a friend backstage, and, and we were talking about the war in Ukraine. And he's got some family and friends that are back that way. And he said something that's been on my heart too. There's just a fatigue that comes with it. At some point, to continue to pray for something that's gone on and on and on for months now, to continue to mourn over that, I just, I want something happy (laughs) where something light. And here Jesus is saying, no, stick in it. Stick in the lament. Blessed are you when there's health stuff going on in a family member or in a friend and you don't just dip out because it gets hard. But when you mourn with them and come alongside, you're blessed. And this especially makes sense if you're looking at a Jewish crowd. I mean, this is a people who have been totally domineered by this Roman Empire. These are people who have been crushed. And Jesus is saying, don't dip out from the emotional side of what it looks like to be an oppressed people. Mourn. And don't just mourn that Rome is here, but mourn the loss of your culture, mourn the loss of your story. This is not where we were supposed to be as a people group. So mourn. And he finishes it with this. For they will be comforted. When? We'll circle back on that. Meek is this next one. I, this is one I think of those words that I go, that really has very little meaning in our, in our culture today. And if, if we have it, it's probably not what they're getting after here. Meek in this particular context, really gets at the idea of somebody who has the power to do something but chooses not to use it. This is the idea of restraint. And I think especially, again, looking at an oppressed people group, they actually have the power to rise up and do something. And Jesus is saying, hey, actually, blessed are you when you restrain that power and when when you choose to serve instead. He continues to point that out. And, And what do they get? For they will inherit the earth when... Hang on to that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They really want it. It's a hunger. It's a thirst. They're parched. It's likely in the text that they're finding this, but they want to live it out. I want to do what is right. I hunger for that. I'm compelled to do the right thing. And what do they look forward to? For righteousness, for they will be filled. When? Hang on to that. Okay, now, There's a bend that takes place here because all of these things, we've talked about being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, restraining your power, hungry and thirsting for righteousness. These are all internal activities. Jesus is talking about your internal dialogue. This is your psychology on the inside of you. But now he's gonna take a turn in these beatitudes. He's gonna say, blessed are you for some things that you're going to do. These are the external things, the things on the outside. And he's gonna say this, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. That's exactly what it sounds like, but I think to push that application all the way through, this is not just when somebody does something poor to you that you show mercy to them. This is like when you engage homelessness. You find in your heart and in your soul a compulsion to have mercy on those who are down on their luck. That's the kind of merciful that he's getting at here. Do you help people? 
Do you not just forgive, although you should forgive? Do you help restore things? That's what he's getting at. The next one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God when Blessed are the pure in heart. There's an exercise here. If you're in a life group, um, or even if you're not, you can dig up Psalm 73 on your own time this week. This is a psalm where it starts off saying, who has a pure heart? And the entire psalm takes you through, what does a pure heart look like? It's just trying to dissect it and put it back together. I'm not gonna get too much more into that one today, but that's a really fun homework assignment if you just wanna read through it. The peacemakers. Blessed are peacemakers. Contextually, You have a group of Jews which believe that God would help them wage war against any invading force and that God would establish his kingdom and that it would be political and that it would be bloodshed fought for. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus seems to be inviting the opposite. And when? When will they be called children of God? When will they be done? And you've probably heard the adage, we're talking about peacemakers, not peacekeepers. There's an activity to this type of peace that Jesus is inviting in his people. And now we're gonna get a two-for-one special as we wrap up these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. If you remember, if you've been here for the past few weeks in a row, you know that right before this has all happened, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has been arrested because he was doing the right things and he was saying the right things because he was mourning the right things because he was peace making the right things. And I, I have to think as Jesus is getting to this point in his sermon that he's going, man, and you know what this is gonna get you? <laughs> Persecuted. People are gonna hate you. I mean, my cousin John, it just happened to him. People are gonna say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's what you can expect if you live life right. Expect to get punched. <laughs> For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Man, and then, and then he does this weird double down, and here's where the pronoun is gonna change. It's no longer a y'all in this one. Now it gets very specific on the individual with one last one. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utterly say, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great from the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He hits persecution twice. The first time saying, hey, all y'all, you know what? You'll be blessed. All of you will be blessed when all of you are persecuted. And then you, and you, and you, when you are persecuted, know that you're right in line with the story that you've been reading your whole life, the prophets, everything that's come before, everything in your text. Rejoice, because you're living it out too. That's what it looks like. Now, I think if you take all of these things and you're looking at how does he finish it, a lot of the commentaries I read, they they really wanted to do what we just did. They go, what's the agency that's happening here? What's the point of that particular line? But it struck me this week that there's one other thing that Jesus is doing consistently here. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they will be comforted, for they will inherit the earth. For their righteousness, they will be filled. For they will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is saying throughout this whole sermon, where's your focus? Is it here? 
If you're going to understand me, if, you're, if I'm going to be your rabbi and you're going to follow me and become like me in every way, you have to be thinking above the world that we're in right now. Heaven is, is the thing that's on your mind. This is what drives you. This is what you think about. When there's persecution, when you're poor, when you're mourning, heaven is where your hope is set. And he says it over and over and over. I love the way that Matthew records this because really when you read it, he's going, the world is difficult. Heaven is where you set your focus. Bad things will happen. Heaven is where you set your focus. I don't know how much time you spend every week being motivated by heaven or thinking about heaven. I think there's something about mortality when you have to look at it that it makes you think a lot about heaven. But we're in a culture, especially in the West, that anesthetizes that in us. We don't like thinking about death. We hate things that decay. We will shove those to the edges and into the shadows because we don't want to think about them. And here Jesus is drawing them out, kicking and screaming, going, no, I want you to think about what happens after you die consistently. It will actually become the thing that gets you through. And if that's something that freaks you out, or if that's something you haven't spent a lot of time studying, I would just, I would recommend a book. It is a tome, but it is amazing. The book is called Heaven. It's written by an author named Randy Alcorn. And he just does a deep dive into a theology of looking into the Bible and going, what does the Bible actually say? I don't, to be clear, agree with everything that he has going on, but man, if there's a book that I've ever read that made me just yearn for heaven, oh, it's amazing. But that seems to be what Jesus is doing in these initial Beatitudes. Who's blessed? Who's happy? What should life be like? What will happen? Well, it looks a lot like being dependent on God, sticking it out when sad things and bad things are happening and sticking with people who are mourning too. It looks like restrained power when you can act or punch back. It looks like being pure in heart, peacemaking, being persecuted. That's life. That's what it looks like to follow me, y'all. And so if that's what it looks like, what does it mean? How do you actually live that out? And that's what he's going to go into next. So if we then jump into Matthew 5, verse 13, he says this. If you get all these beatitudes, if you're living them out, y'all, as a group of people, You all are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and it's trampled underfoot. You all are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let y'all's light shine before others so that they may see y'all's good work and give glory to y'all's Father in heaven. If you dig into the Greek, that's really what Matthew's saying. That's what Matthew's saying, Jesus is saying. This, um, we're talking to a crowd, we're talking to a group, we're talking to a community of people. And it's a funny thing for now Jesus to add. This is kind of his first really big inaugural address. He gets through this initial very confusing for the crowd group of beatitudes. Blessed, happy are those who look like this. And people are going, what? And then Jesus posts this warning. Next thing. You're supposed to be the salt of the earth. You're supposed to have people see how you live, what you do, that they would see your good works. And he's reminding them that their purpose is to share God with the world around them. 
that God doesn't just belong to the Jewish people, but that everything they do is for the purpose of sharing God with anyone who doesn't know him. And that was a pretty offensive to the mind at the time. And taking all this in together, it would make sense to us that at least for the hardcore Jewish folks, they're wondering, is this guy throwing out all of the Old Testament? Is he kosher at all? Is he sticking with the script and the story? Because it seems like he's running totally maverick. He's touching sick people. He's casting out demons. He's associating and even incorporating pagan people. He's saying that we should be light, not just unto ourselves, but to everybody. It's not right. And then Jesus' next line shouldn't surprise us at all. I think he's watching his crowd. And he says this, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm not doing anything new. I'm not getting away from the law and the prophets. I'm showing you what they were all about all along, and you've missed it along the way. I take it seriously, but I know how to read and interpret and live it, and you don't. So let me explain. And then as we get into next week, we're gonna see Jesus take just a handful of these laws from the 10 commandments and go, you've read this before, but let me tell you what it means because you don't get it. You took it the wrong way. Jesus has established here that he's a rabbi and he's inviting us to follow him in this text. Later he'll say a student is not greater than his teacher. It's as if he's saying, if I live this way, so should you. And a a rabbi couldn't say things and not live that way. That was part of the gig. Everything Jesus just said in these Beatitudes, not just for him as an individual, but how he understood the group that he was a part of. It was integrated into his daily life. Jewish folks of Jesus' day, they distilled the Old Testament down to about 613 commandments. They were chiseled, and you would have to live by that every day. And I think Jesus is looking at that going, you've missed the point in writing all this down. And I think as Christians of today in the West, we've subscribed a bit too much of individualism into our hearts. And I think Jesus is saying, I think you are also missing the point and you'll have to come back and hear it at least one more time. We find ourselves today in an increasingly post-Christian world There's a strong sense in some Christian circles that that is a loss, that somehow in America the church has lost or is losing its power. And I think that Matthew should comfort and instruct quite easily with this sermon from his Jesus. It speaks directly to the us versus them mentality, but not how you might assume. This is a sermon written to those who are not in power. Jesus encourages meekness and mercy and peacemaking. We don't see Jesus banging his fist on the table saying, take back Israel, but rather a place for restrained power, a place of mourning, a place of being a people who want to do a right thing, and frankly, at the end of the day, a place where people are looking around going, it's about people. It's not about politics or power. This is about people. Let the church be the thing you hope to see God's presence and his power and his influence and not in the political system. If we do it well here, we get salty. We start to shed light on things and then not out of a place of force but out of a magnetism of beauty, we draw the system to us 
rather than joining in the bloodshed or feeling like we have to integrate or have power or dominion over it. That's not the point. Jesus is saying, live it out. You don't just live it, but you talk, if you, do, if you don't live it, but you just talk about it, it's useless. You are a useless disciple. You can't no longer follow me because you're not integrated. And if you can't take what I'm teaching you and what I'm showing you and follow my example, you, you've stopped following me. He's more concerned with the community of people, the community, the y'all, the group, than he is with individuals. And guilt by association cuts both ways. How are we as discovery known in this community? Are we known for the light that we shed and for the hope that we bring? And I, I think there should be a piece of you that goes, yeah, I think so, I think we do. But there's something that gets really clunky here, I think, as, as Westerners, when we try to think corporately, when we try to think about ourselves as a whole group. Jesus, early on, is pointing to a group of people as the hope of the world. He will certainly and is certainly the hope behind it. But here we should begin seeing a high level of respect and desire for the local church and what we do in it, not what it does for us. Part of our church is sick in the West because there are folks who think they don't need to be a part of a local church to have a faith or to follow this Jesus rabbi. Their Christian faith is something they can just practice by themselves. And I think in Jesus' inaugural address, he's saying, no, that you've completely missed it. Go back and read it again, y'all. This is about y'all. This is about all of you together. Local church, with me at your core, if Jesus is at your core, you are the hope of the world. You are salt, you are light, and by you I mean y'all. I'm gonna put this up on the screen because this is the point I think that Jesus is making in this entire sermon. You know that song, This Little Light of Mine? I think Jesus would look at it and go, that is a beautiful song. Don't sing that. <laughs> that's not the point. If that's what you got, that's your individualism totally messing with something that was always meant to be us. Sing this little light of ours. It changes the way that you think. It changes how you view your activity in and especially outside of this place. You become an ambassador of God, not just as an individual, but as a part of this group. You start ordering off the Buca de Beppo menu and not just the macaroni grill menu because you're thinking about everybody and the table and what can we share and what are we doing and how can I be a part of what's going on here. So no, BBC, you're wrong. Jesus was not setting up a religion that was individualistic. He was highly collective, highly corporate, and I think it's Western thinking that has done some weird stuff with what he taught. But at his core, we've got a very Jewish Jesus saying very Jewish things. It's about us. It's not about you. It's about us together. I want you to be thinking that way as I start my sermon on the mount. How do you think about everybody sitting on this hillside? To my four disciples who are very Jewish, are you cool and comfortable with the fact that we've got demon-possessed Joe sitting over here? He's looking great, by the way. We've also got the Romans out in left field and they're kind of doing some weird stuff with blood and pigs. We don't really know, but they're here. How do you feel about that, that they're here? Can we be okay being we on this mountainside with everybody here? Man, what a beautiful sermon. Let me bring out the band. 
and I'm going to start landing the plane. The big question here is, do I show up? Do I wonder if the music's good for me or if the sermon speaks to me and then get in my car and go home? Or do I see church for all that it does, knowing that I play a part in it, and not just in it, but out of the church? That's what Jesus is teaching as a rabbi. Jesus also seems to be saying, know your text. Go back and reread the Old Testament. I'm not doing anything that hasn't already been written or done. I'm just rereading it in a way that I hope you get it this time. Don't make it into 613 rules. Don't make it into some individualistic thing. This has always been about a group of people that God is inviting to put the world back together with him as a partner. And finally, for an original reader, knowing the end of Jesus' story, this, this is being read after Jesus has died, crucified, tortured on a cross. They're watching him say, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who follow the story. Blessed are those who do all of these things that are hard. And I think there's a sense that they're going, this rabbi, he didn't just talk a big game. He didn't just say that in chapter five and then bow out towards the end when it got rough. He did it all the way through. Man, this rabbi stuck to his guns. There's an invitation from him then. What do you expect if you live this way? If you choose this way? What do you expect? It's going to be hard. A student is not greater than the master. Expect that persecution. Expect it to grind. Expect it to cost you something. And expect it to be good. And the thing that will get you through is an unswerving focus on heaven as the highest reality, not what's right in front of your eyes. If you have been hearing all this for the past couple weeks and you're going, I, I want to be discipled. I need to be discipled. I, I want this kind of rabbi thing. Somebody needs to explain this to me. If you don't know where to go for that, brendan at dc2.me. Not saying Brendan's going to disciple everybody, but Brendan, uh, Brendan Reed is the one here on staff of the church that helps run all of our life groups and much of the discipleship that happens around here. You can email him and we can help get that sorted out for you. You can also just look around and if you spend time serving, I guarantee you're going to brush shoulders with people that you go, I want to be like them when I grow up. Hint. That's somebody who you should say, will you disciple me? Will you just, can we have coffee once a week or every other week? Will you just tell me how you live? Can we read the scripture together and you tell me what this means? You can just do that. You can just ask people to coffee. That's part of what makes this us. Do you want to disciple? Are you feeling like, I know this. I know this stuff. I just, I'm not, I get, I'm not doing it yet. I'm not doing it at the level that I want to. Last week I had a really strong invitation <laughs> Jesus was walking alongside this lake and he grabbed some 18-year-olds. There's a lot of teenagers in our culture that are dying for help. We have local partners of Juvenile Justice with Youth for Christ and at Young Life. We have a youth ministry that is in need of a whole new crop of folks that are going to go chase teenagers who come to church. We have a children's ministry downstairs. And if you saw it this morning, as we're looking into these summer months, we're looking for every family, every couple, every person to give two to three Sundays where you can give the folks who are down there all the time a break. You just hang out with kids a couple Sundays this summer and let them have a breather. But I would challenge you to this. 
maybe that's the group of folks that you should be hanging out with and discipling. A group of first graders. Go love on them. Follow them to second grade. And then follow them to fifth grade. And follow them to senior year. This is always meant to be a relational thing. If you're interested in jumping in, particularly on the children's ministry stuff, that really is a need that we have as a church this summer. The QR code's on the back of the chair. You can find it there. Kelsey will be in the breezeway. Uh, there's also, you can find that on our website. It's all there. And then finally, I'm just going to remind you of something that I mentioned last week that I think is so helpful in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're looking for a way to engage it personally, I think to grab a pen and a journal or a piece of paper and just start writing Matthew chapter 5. Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. And you write the text. And it may seem kind of silly, but for those of you that have done it, and I've heard from a couple of you, there's a sense of like, man, I've got questions coming out of my ears because as I'm writing it, I'm being forced to think about it differently. I mean, it slows me way down. I'm not just trying to burn through text on a page, but I'm writing it as a slow cadence. If you're looking for a way to engage this, we're still going to be in this for the next four weeks. What would it look like for you to write down every week the whole Sermon on the Mount and then restart the following? You can do that again this week. This rabbi is something else. The things that he teaches are mind-blowing to the original audience, to the historical audience, to an individualistic audience. He's different. He really cares about us all together. So out of that spirit, I hope that as we sing in just a moment, that you're not just listening for your own voice or looking at the words on the screen, but I would invite you differently this time, maybe than on a normal Sunday. Lean forward a little bit more and just listen to the voices around you and hear the glory of a group of people doing something in unison that's beautiful and right. Let's sing together.